0: All right. Let me start this morning with a question: What does it mean to be spiritual? I uh, I just mentioned just a a couple of minutes ago to my son uh, that we're we're giving our money to Jesus, and he said, "When's he coming?" (laughs) I said, "Well, it's not. We can talk about this later, right?" This is a long conversation, but but uh, it just it reminded me even now about this reality that we live inside of, um, this spiritual reality that, that we live within that we walk out as physical beings. Uh, and uh, the, the question that we want to look at this morning is, what does it mean to be spiritual? Um, we might, you might have an, images that come into your head when you think about this, right? You might have pictures. Like most of us do, you ask a question and it evokes an image, uh, something that comes to your mind. You might, you might have an image of uh, the picture of self-sacrifice. You know, the man who uh, risks... His safety, his own good, uh, for the benefit of someone else—a uh, self-sacrificial moment. Um, you might have the picture of uh, a picture of generosity. Uh, you know, someone who gives uh, all of themselves away, gives their money away, gives their time away. Uh, you know, gives of themselves, loses themselves to give uh, for the good of others. You might have, um, when you when you ask the question, "What does it mean to be spiritual?" You might have the picture of spiritual gifts like we've been talking about, right? So, so you, might, you might see a church leader or someone, you know, a community group leader, someone that you look to and you go, well, I think that's what it means to be spiritual, right? You might see that image in your head, someone with uh, great wisdom or great knowledge uh, or great faith, you know, someone who's got this incredible faith and you think, what does it mean to be spiritual? Well, that person is a picture for me of what it means to be spiritual. But when you think about it, we've all heard... Stories of people who 've seemingly done the right thing, but they 've had the wrong motives, right? So all of a sudden it, it throws a little bit of a, a little bit of a question on behavior on people that might act in the right way, they might have been doing the right things, they might have been sacrificing something great and they might have been generous, they might have been uh, walking in spiritual gifts, they might have been you know abundant in spiritual gifts but um, it comes to the surface that their motives were wrong, right? And, and there was a perversion underneath. And all of a sudden, the, the image is distorted. And you go, well, actually, what does it mean? Because I, I thought that they were the picture of what it means to be spiritual when really they were, their motives were impure and they were corrupt and they were, they were using people. And and it seems like the the waters are a little bit, muddied there, and we know the wrong motives lead eventually to the wrong behavior, for out of the heart, right? So let, let's just think about a second here. What are, what, are, what are a few of the wrong motives? Just to flesh that out for a moment. What are, what are some of the wrong motives that uh, we might operate within? Well, uh, it could be pride, right? It could be pr- pride. Could be one of the ways in which we operate from a wrong motive, pride. What's pride? Well, we love ourselves too much. Someone who's proud, I'll do this, right? I will do this, I will operate in this way, I will, I will uh, manifest this behavior, providing that I get this. This credit, this reward, this recognition, this uh, reputation, this leverage, this respect, right? And then all of a sudden the motive underneath is corrupt, Right? I'm doing these spiritual gifts and I'm doing these uh, uh, generous acts and I'm sacrificing these things in order to gain reputation. And everyone looks and, and all of a sudden the whole picture is changed. And you go, well, that, that's just, that just sucks, right? Because these things were great. But now the motive's changed and these things are just a little bit tarnished. Maybe another motive that could be underneath there is fear of man. We love others too much, right? And and in a a way, it's really just another form of pride because you're ultimately thinking about yourself in the way that others think about you, right? It's a bit of a a a twisted uh, form of pride. I hope that they think that I'm okay, right? And it might be fear of man, that is a motive, and, and, and you exhibit behavior that's centered around impressing others, proving your value to others, your significance to others, parading your generosity and your ability and your performance. Look what I can do. Look at how great I am. Because I really need to know that you guys value me. And all of a sudden, the motive's twisted again, right? Let's, let's apply this for a second. If you have children... I wonder what your, your daily operating principle is, right? Not the ideal, not the ideal principle, right? Your, the ideal principle is raising children to love Christ, right? To follow Christ, to be passionately pursuing Christ through all of their lives. But I wonder what your daily operating principle is, the default. You know, it seems like, and this might just be me, but it seems like sometimes the maxim, the maxim for parenting is, Raising children to do what they're told. Right? And all the parents can't laugh because it stings them a little bit, but then they sort of want to laugh because they recognize how they did that yesterday, but then they get stung again, right? And that seems like that's what we do. Think about the words that we use. Just do it. I don't want to hear another word. Do as you are told. What are we gunning for? Obedience. Right behavior. What does that sound like? Isn't that a little... Isn't What does that sound like? Isn't that familiar in the New Testament? Who are those people again? The Pharisees, right? Right behavior. Raising children to do what they're told since 200 BC. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't remember the timeline, but anyway, that's, that's a joke. That's fine. All right, think, think about uh, if you don't have kids, you might have friends, or if, think about if you have any form of relationship whatsoever, right? So that's everyone. Um, because everyone was born think about the standard of relationships how do you encourage one another how do we move towards each other how do we encourage one another or how do we judge one another right in any way when we think about the way that we relate together isn't so much of it based around behavior right now i'm not saying that we disregard behavior i'm just pressing in a little bit here oh man you've been man you've been really sacrificing a lot lately well done Man, that's great! Like, I'm, I'm, re- I'm stoked. That's that's incredible. Without, without at all questioning the motives. Or on the other side, man, you have been, you've been messing up all over the place. You're an idiot. You need to get your life together. Without at all questioning the motives, right? We just look at behaviour. And the behaviour isn't the point, right? Obedience isn't the point sacrifice isn't the point in our pride we make service about us when in fact it's about God I'm going to stand up for a, for a moment and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 we're going to read the text and then I'm going to dive into it so stand with me and we'll read we'll uh, open it up a little bit 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Amen. Be seated. So to remind you of the the context here uh, in Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, uh, a church which is largely a reflection of the city of Corinth. So uh, quite a diverse blend of people in this church. So uh, free and slaves and rich and poor Largely Greeks, and, and there's, a, there's a handful of Jews that are mentioned throughout the book as well. But the picture, the picture throughout the book of Corinthians, is, is one that is a predominantly Gentile community. So the, the majority of whom are, are lower end of the socioeconomic scale and Gentiles. And there's a small group of Jews and there's a small group of wealthy families. Um, but think about this for a second the picture of a, is a Gentile community. So former pagans who Have come uh, to faith and they've joined the church from a, a Greek worldview, a, a Hellenistic worldview and attitude towards behavior. So, uh, uh, when we think about the church, we think about Paul's words to them, we're thinking of a Corinthian church with an inordinate amount of Corinth in them. So, so, what is happening throughout this whole book is this radical surgery without killing the patient, right? So, there's this. There's this delicate but radical surgery happening right throughout Corinthians that is, that is really important, is really central. And Paul's trying to do this without killing the, the patient. Um, uh, the church, is, the church is, uh, just needs a lot of surgery, right? So Paul, throughout this book, he's talking about sexual morals. He's talking about attitude, attitudes towards marriage. He's talking about um, temple feasts and, and, and uh, pagan idolatry. He's talking about... Um, uh, the church and the state and, and uh, adjudication with magistrates. He's talking about. Uh, then, then there's one theological issue towards the end, but largely he's getting at a number of behaviours that have come into the church um, from a different worldview, and he's he's operating delicately but very significantly. The key tension here between Paul and the church in Corinth uh, is is that the the key contour of the whole letter was the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? That's what he's doing throughout this letter. He's, he's answering with them this question, what does it mean to be spiritual? And he's looking at some of the behaviors that are popping up, and he dives underneath them, right? And he keeps diving underneath them to help them understand what does it mean to be spiritual? So he hears these reports, uh, right? So he writes and he says, I've heard these reports. And then, and then he's actually written a letter to them before this, Um, We we don't know what it is or or we don't know entirely what it said, but we have some clues. He says, in my earlier letter, right? So he's written to them already and he's heard reports. I mean, he's writing back to them. uh, Across Corinthians, he addresses at least 11 concerns, 10 of which are behavioral. And there's one theological concern, which is about um, bodily resurrection, uh, right towards the end of the book. But, But largely, he's writing towards them, writing to address behavioral concerns, but in every case his greater concern is the theological stance underneath the behavior. That's what he's doing. So he he sort of dives in at the behavioral level but he's going underneath to look at uh, the theological concern. Um, So the Corinthian church was interpreting what it meant to be spiritual as a series of behaviors. And that's the picture they had. They they would answer the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? Oh, well, it means da-da-da-da-da-da. And we're about to get into that, a series of behaviors. And Paul is is cutting quite strongly uh, against this and underneath this um, to a new theological stance. So as we zone in on chapters 12 to 14, as we sort of just narrow that down a little bit, you can begin to see how the Corinthian church is understanding spiritual gifts. How they're they're experiencing these gifts and then understanding them um, with a pagan worldview. A set of behaviors that demonstrated what it meant to be spiritual. So let me give you a few examples of that. Um, For them, speaking in tongues or or glossolalia, uh, the the Greek word, was for them the evidence that they had already assumed the spiritual existence of angels, right? So when Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, he's getting at an understanding that they had of what it meant to be spiritual. Well, when we speak in tongues, it's like we're experiencing this new supernatural reality. It's like we're assuming the existence of angels. And Paul isn't really looking at the behavior, he's actually looking underneath that and now think about wisdom and knowledge, and we're about to dive into these a little bit more deeply, but I'm just giving you an overview, along with their interest in wisdom and knowledge, right? Both of these gifts had become their special possessions by means of the Spirit. They, they, they envisioned themselves as spiritually endowed, right? We have wisdom and knowledge, Think about where Paul uses these words. The the spaces throughout Corinthians where Paul uses wisdom and knowledge is uh, in the context of behavioral aberrations, where where they are acting way out of character and Paul is sharply correcting them. (laughs) You think that you're wise? Why the heck is this going on, right? Like he, He says that throughout the book. You think that you have knowledge? What is this? And and he looks at what they're doing as a church. So Paul, in in this little uh, scene here in in 1 Corinthians 13, as he's been doing the entire letter, is looking to really sharply correct the Corinthian understanding of what it means to be spiritual. And in this case, uh, today, with reference to the spiritual gifts. So verse 1, let's um, unpack this a little bit. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, or a clanging symbol. So again, the Corinthian church is saying, that's a hint, the Corinthian church is saying, this is what it means to be spiritual. The the undertone here is this is what it means to be spiritually great or significant. And and here Paul is specifically addressing that uh, the, the church with regard to tongues and their spiritual existence, right? So Paul is getting at a theological understanding that the church had about what speaking in tongues, uh, the, the value that it had for them and, and what it made them. And so, so when you think about this, um, we often think that oh, Paul's concern is their over-enthusiasm. It's like, oh, they're just they're just getting a bit carried away, right? It's like, just tone it down a little bit. That's not Paul's concern here. Uh, His concern here is the same concern as the larger issue of the whole letter. It was that their view of spirituality had caused them to miss the gospel and miss its ethics. They they, they totally missed the point. And Paul cuts back with with this razor sharp clarity without love, you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we hear those again, we hear those and we go, oh, that's no good. I don't want to be. There's so much behind that. Look at this noisy gong. Uh, we're not entirely clear what this means, but the clearest explanation of a noisy gong was the picture for the flat response of a crowd in an amphitheater. So someone, just just imagine this, someone is making an appeal to the crowd, uh, it could be dramatically or it could be humorously, and they're, they're making this appeal and you, hear, and you hear nothing, right? This flat response from the crowd, their words just... And it's flat. Just a noisy gong. This person who's making this appeal, but it's not landing at all. So think about this in, in the context of speaking in tongues. It's as if someone is making an appeal in, in, to a crowd in an amphitheater, and it is not connecting with anyone. No one is connecting with it. You see how there's so much more uh, a meaning behind that? When you look at that picture, clanging symbol. Think of the picture of a clanging symbol. This was an instrument... That was very clearly and expressly associated with pagan cults. So we don't—it's not just like, oh, it's like, it's like the drummer playing out of turn, right? We, we, we go, oh, that's the worst, right? That's not the picture that Paul's getting at. He's connecting this with what they would do before they were in Christ in pagan rituals—to speak in tongues as they were doing, thinking that they were being spiritual but with no concern for building up the community in love, isn't just about speaking unintelligible words. It makes one sound like the empty, hollow noises of idolatry. You see how sharp that is? See how cutting that is? To speak in tongues like you're doing, church in in Corinth, without any love and regard for building up your community, sounds to me like the hollow noise of idolatry. Wow, okay, okay, ease up, Paul. He's not getting at the behavior, he's getting underneath that to their theological understanding of what it means to be spiritual. What a sobering statement. Without love, my speaking in tongues is as empty as idolatry. Verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now he just, he's just pushing further, isn't he? It's like it wasn't enough just to target speaking in tongues. Because all, all, um, all of the more reserved Christians are like, yeah, suck, suckers, you know. No, no, no. Paul's like, I'm including all of the spiritual gifts now. I'm just drawing the net far wider and I'm going to make this point as emphatically as possible. If someone could embrace the whole range of spiritual gifts and each gift in its fullness, right? In, in great depth and fullness, but at the same time fail to be full of love, they would be nothing in God's sight. Notice how a, a misunderstanding here of what it means to be spiritual and, and how a mishandling of these gifts can just lead you so far astray. Do you, do you see that? Do you see how if you don't properly understand the spiritual gifts and if you don't handle them properly, it can lead you so far astray, right? So in, in, for the church in Corinth, their knowledge in chapter 8 led them to pride and the destruction of a brother for whom Christ died, and their wisdom led to quarrels and rivalry. Their tongues were neither edifying the community nor allowing pagans to respond, right? So people would come in, they'd go, no, no idea. And their mishandling and their misunderstanding of their spiritual gifts led them astray. So for the church in Corinth, man, we can speak in the tongues of angels and we have great knowledge and wisdom and it, and it puffs us up. And we engage in pagan rituals and we sleep with our family members and we critically misunderstand our physical bodies. It's like, I think, I think we need to have a chat uh, because I think that there's a little bit of a misunderstanding here of what it means to be spiritual. Without love, the sum of my spiritual gifts, as deep and profound as they may be, the sum is nothing before God. Verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now notice um, the difference here, right? What's the difference between verse 3 and and verse 1 and 2? He's not talking about spiritual gifts anymore, is he? He's stepped beyond the scope of um, spiritual gifts, and he's delivering. this is where he's delivering a theological reality, right? So he's, he's started with one gift and then he's addressed more broadly and now he's stepping beyond the f- spiritual gifts um, to, to look at a theological reality that, that cuts across their understanding. And, and what um, Paul's doing here in verse 3 is there's a reflection of his own ministry, referring to the bodily sufferings through which he boasts. So if, you, if you've got a Bible... Um, digitally or in paper, you'll see a manuscript ver- variation. If I deliver up my body to be burned, can also read, deliver up my body to death that I may boast. Right? So there's some there's variation in the manuscript there. But either way, that, that the scripture here is Paul reflecting on his own ministry, reflecting on um, that I may boast in my weakness, right? He talks all throughout Corinthians about um, that the suffering that he's experienced and, and the way that he boasts in his... Weakness, And he's saying, even the moments when I'm boasting in my weakness and crying for God's strength, even the greatest moments of self-sacrifice I've experienced in my ministry without love, it profit me nothing. So This is this intensely personal reflection on his own ministry to help the church understand how significant this is. It isn't just speaking in tongues that requires love. It isn't just even the spiritual gifts, but rather the entire life of the Christian that depends on love to have any genuine transformational effect or gain. If my activity or, or my behavior isn't a true reflection of God's love, then at the end of the day, I gain nothing. But, but when my love, and in turn my activity, comes from the reality of me being loved by God, I gain everything. So, so the, the big question for us, reflecting on these three verses, is what does it mean to be spiritual? Well, to receive God's love, and through that, to love others. So let let me begin to apply this a little bit. Should you resolve, after hearing this, you hear me say what I've just said, should you resolve, well, Matt, I don't really feel like I love others, so I think I might need to step down from uh, leading a community group or, or serving on a Sunday morning ministry team or I don't think I can give financially anymore. I don't think I can even have a loving conversation with anyone at the moment because I only really love myself. So I don't think I'll talk to anyone either. Like, if that's what you resolve, right, is that because I don't feel like I love others, I better not do anything. My response would not be, well, you're right. Uh, You should probably never make a personal sacrifice again until you're sure that you're perfectly loving others. No, that is not how I would respond, right? And and I think you know that. You know that it's not a case of responding and saying, well, I don't really feel like I love others now, so I'm just not going to do anything. My response would be, you need to take hold of God's love for you. You need to be captured by God's love. You need to put yourself in the right position to receive from God's love. And in God's love, make sense of everything else. Make sense of the rest of your life. Um, C.S. Lewis gets at this a little bit in his book, um, The Four Loves, where he he talks about uh, the four different types of Uh, Love, affection, friendship, eros, and charity. Um, Charity not being charity in the traditional sense. Um, God's love for humanity. And he says this. Let me read you a a quote. Uh, The loves prove... uh, So this is, sorry, the context here. He's talking now about charity. He's talking about God's love for humanity. And he's reflecting back on the other loves that we experience and know. So love... Uh, affectionately, friendship, and and eros. He says the loves, these other three, prove that they are unworthy to take the place of God by the fact that they cannot even remain themselves and do what they promised to do without God's help. These loves cannot be the loves that they are without God's love. Why prove that some petty princeling is not the lawful emperor even without the emperor's... Sorry, when even without the emperor's support he cannot even keep his subordinate throne and make peace in his little province for half a year. Now listen to this. Even for their own sakes, the loves must submit to be second things if they are to remain the things they want to be. In this yoke lies their true freedom. They are taller when they bow. For, now, this is is the the point, for when God rules in a human heart, though he may sometimes have to remove certain of its native authorities altogether, he often continues others in their offices and by subjecting their authority to his, gives it for the first time a firm basis. So for when God rules in a human heart, though he may sometimes have to remove certain of its native authorities, though some of those may have to be removed, he often continues others in their offices by subjecting their authority to his. Put yourself before the love of God and God's love, God's rule, realigns your life. And I would continue this thought to say our behavior becomes subject to his love. And in subject to his love, finds a firm basis. Listen to, uh, listen to how Paul talks about this in, in the next letter, in Second Corinthians 5. He says, for If we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Now listen to the way that Paul reflects on this. For the love of Christ controls us. Right? You see how that realigns uh, Paul's ministry and the way that he orientates himself towards the church here. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's saying, do you see how this works? When you really get a a picture of God's love, it controls you. It takes over your life. It realigns your behavior. So what you don't need is to just fix your behavior. You need to put yourself before the love of God. You need to position yourself to receive God's love. It, it governs us. So what is Christ's love like? Well, Christ's love was to actively seek the benefit of someone else. For, for, for Paul, if you think about Paul's understanding of the love of Christ... Um, Think of the picture that he gives us in Romans 5. This is a, a beautiful, rich picture. And this is the picture that I want us to meditate on. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Sorry. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But... God shows His love for us, right? God reveals His love for us. We see a picture of God's love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see what's happening here? See the picture of Christ's love? Dying. Death. Death on a cross. And I heard recently, I don't remember where, but I heard recently that the love we have for our worst enemy is the love that we show for God. You see how it begins to make itself manifest here? To have love, therefore, to have love, like Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, to have, if I have not love, well, to have love, therefore, means to be toward and for others the way that God in Christ has been towards us. Do you see the picture? The way that Christ has been towards us? Like the way, the depth... And the significance of the way that Christ was towards us in Romans five, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So for us to love others means to to, to be like that means to be toward others the same way that God has been towards us. You see how significant that is? It's not necessarily love to love your friends, right? talked about elsewhere, it's love to love your enemies, to love the parts of people that it's really difficult to love, uh, to move towards those people that it's just really hard to love them right now. And this is what you see at the heart of every ethical instruction, right? In Christ's uh, um, teaching and and ministry and in uh, the letters of the New Testament, it's about what is in our hearts it's about our love the music team can come up now Um, if you were to sum up these three verses in in short you'd you'd say it's about love wouldn't you right now now think about this for a second Paul is referring like the the, the verses here and and the chapter preceding and and the chapter moving forward uh, are talking about spiritual gifts but if you were to sum up Um, Paul's sharp comments toward them, right? So uh, after this, um, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 and onward, it's really sweet because Paul gives you a picture of love. He gives you a picture of what love is like. But to, to set the scene, to start off this chapter, he cuts right in, right? And I get the honor of doing that work as well. He cuts in and he says, it's not the point. Your spiritual gifts are not the point. Your love is the point. And what he's saying, let let me summarize it in this. True love to God and man is a caring disposition towards others that grows from sincere devotion to God. Right? True love is a a caring, self-sacrificial disposition towards others. That is still there. But that grows out of a sincere devotion to God. And Paul is saying that is preferable to all gifts and sacrifice. I don't care about your sacrifice. It means nothing to me. Keep your money, keep your sacrifice, keep your good works. It means nothing if it is not compelled by love. Do you see this in, in Paul's uh, correcting thoughts otherwise? For God loves a cheerful giver, right? The cheer is the thing that he wants. The love is what he's gunning for. So let's receive love today. We're going to receive love as we as we, um, we turn to think about communion. What's communion? Uh, communion is uh, do this in remembrance of me. Communion is the, the breaking of bread and, and, and the, the taking of bread and the, the drinking of uh, drink. To look back to the sacrifice of Christ. And what are we looking at? What are we looking at as we look back to the sacrifice of Christ? We're looking at the picture of love, aren't we? We're looking at the picture of a a bloodied, beaten, broken Savior uh, that was crucified on a cross. We're looking and we're staring right back directly at the picture of love, right? So when I say to you that it's about love... And you say, well, I don't really feel that loved, Matt, so I better remove myself from everything. I say, no, no. I say, put yourself in the position to receive the love of Christ. But what's the position? What's one of those positions? Well, take communion. Put yourself in the position to receive the love of God and to be transformed by it. That's communion. That's Christian fellowship. That is praise. That is prayer. That is crying out to God. I don't see it, but help me to see. Put yourself underneath the fountain of God's love towards you, right? Underneath the blood of Christ that pours out in his broken body and receive his love. That is what transforms you. That is what renews your heart. And that's, that's what we want to do here. If We can have um, some of the uh, leaders of the church come up and, and bring uh, the elements up. What we're doing here is we take communion we're looking back to the sacrifice of Christ and, and two things are happening for us. We're sobered, right? We recognize the, the impurity of our hearts and our sinfulness and our rebellion and we long to be washed clean and, and we long for, for Christ's perfect sacrifice to wash us clean. Right? His body that was broken for us to make us whole, and his blood that was spilled to wash us clean. We long to be whole and we long to be clean. And that's what we do. We're clinging to the cross in this longing. We long, Christ, would your sacrifice make me clean? Would it make me whole? And the other thing that's happening is is we're compelled. Right? We are sobered and we are compelled. We take. Hold of the sacrifice of Christ, His death, that gives me life and it transforms us. It controls us. It compels us. That's good news, right? We look back at the cross of Christ and that compels us. That is good news. We look back and we look at the new life that we have because of death. From death comes life and it compels us towards others. And that's the trajectory for us as we move away from communion, as we move into communion. We're sobered and we're brokenhearted and we're cast down because we long to be clean and we long to be made whole. But we walk away from communion with great hope that we're forgiven, that we're made new, right? And And we're compelled towards other people. We're renewed in His love for us. So I'm going to pray And now for us, I'm going to take a a moment, uh, just just a minute or two to reflect, and and we're going to listen to uh, a a part of this song, and then I'll invite you to come and receive from Christ, and to, to put yourself, to position yourself to receive His love. So let me pray, and we'll just take a moment to reflect, to look back, and to look at that sacrifice, and... Take communion together. Jesus, would you, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you cut across um, the parts of our heart and and the parts of our faith and the things that we believe, uh, those parts that tell us that... um, spirituality is is about our our behavior and about our our great sacrifices and our generosity and about these great gifts that we have. Would you cut across those um, with a a clear reminder that um, that's not it, that those are insufficient, that those in and of themselves, without love, they amount to nothing. Would you convict us where, where we've walked out uh, that reality where we've walked out the reality that um i just need to be obedient or even even in our in our pride where we walk out our spiritual gifts because we want people to make we want people to think more of us would you uh, would you work in our hearts and by your Holy Spirit to convict that. And, and as we look back at Christ now and his sacrifice, would you take hold of us with your love? Would you renew us? And the spiritual, a reality that to be spiritual means to be loved by God and to take that love towards others.